Hi, it's Dr. Squee here. I'm here to tell you about my live video podcast event, Squeefest 2020, brought to you by StreamYard. 2pm to 2pm British Summertime, or 9am to 9am Eastern, I will be going live for 24 hours on the Dr. Squee Show Facebook page and twitch.tv slash Dr. Squee to raise money for NHS charities together who are supporting NHS staff and volunteers who are bringing the fight to COVID-19. We will have guest stars including the third Doctor Doctor Who companion Katie Manning. From going live we have Trevor Simon. Stand-up comedian Anubhav Powell will be bringing Mumbai to the event and we'll have so many more guest stars to announce. As well as that we have quizzes, games, panels with authors and ghost hunters. We've also got your favourite podcasts, Retrek, Netheads, Legend in My Spare Time, Due South by Southeast, Unclassical, Dead Piet Society, Talking Codswallop, Diversely Geek, Legend of the Travelling Tardis, Dog's Best Friend and Blay Makes Food. As well as all that, our friends over at SW20 Radio, The Sound of South Wales, will be broadcasting an hour of Squeefest with our friend Matt Lees. Please follow our Facebook page and at Dr. Squee on Twitter and Instagram for more guest announcements as we have them. All this and so much more. If you can afford to donate, please go to justgiving.com slash squeefest now or on the day and give what you can. And join me for 24 hours of fun. I'll see you there. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee and this is my show. Very pleased to have had Kenton Hall on the show this week. Writer, he's a filmmaker, a musician, and we talked about it all. Uh, what a wonderful guest, what a wonderful chat we had. Uh, we did have a slight uh, thing where the uh, just for some reason during the conversation he cut out a little bit. I've, I've just slightly edited that down for audio um, just so there isn't a long pause. I'm going, so uh, there's that. Due to that issue, because my camera also kind of cut out at one stage during the interview, I've used the audio from my computer because that recorded me throughout. And unfortunately, it's meant that Kenton's audio isn't quite as crisp as it should be. But I decided being able to hear us consistently throughout was probably better than it breaking up um so sorry about that for kenton's sake and and uh, for your listening sake but it, it sounds okay it's just not it, like it, it sounds like it's coming out some speakers more than ideally but uh, i think it's still a good listen uh, it's still a wonderful chat i had with kenton wow uh, what a really interesting guy and uh, i i'd actually interviewed him before uh, back when i was doing gallifrey stands my doctor my doctor who podcast which i did prior to this uh, podcast and even though i do pride myself that when i talk to a guest i talk about their all their works even back then uh, i was very proud to do that there's something about this new show where it's like i'm i just feel like i'm talking to the person more and i like that I, th- I think that shows the growth which I've made as a uh, a podcaster and a, as a presenter, uh, as just talking to someone as a human being first and not their kind of job. You know, I know those interviews are centering around what someone does and why they're kind of in the in the public limelight, if you will. But uh, I think you know, if you get it right you get through to the person and you're just two people having a conversation and this definitely was one of those times uh so thank you very much to kenton thank you for being so open about your struggles with uh, bipolar 
and you know uh, the way he accepts it as part of his life i think is quite beautiful and uh it's it's really good uh it, but i just really dug, dug this conversation so uh, without further ado uh please enjoy my conversation with mr kenton hall welcome to the show with your friend and mine so tell me dr squee who's it gonna be this time we like to hear you talk and we love to hear Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Tonight, Squee welcomes... And now here's the man himself, Dr. Squee. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee and this is my show. Now, uh, we'll get on to my guest in just one second, just very quickly. I want to remind you, for anyone who hasn't been following the updates... Uh, in a few weeks, on the 19th and 20th of September, that's the Saturday and Sunday in UK time. Oh, my phone's going to go off right there. Of course it is, because it's live. But uh, UK time will be 2pm to 2pm. I'm going to be going live with Squeefest, which is a special 24-hour podcast raising money for NHS charities together. It's going to be a video podcast. Please look on the page where we've already made some guest announcements, such as Katie Manning from uh, the third Doctor Doctor Who and uh, Trevor Simon and loads of other people. So please check that out. Please do join us. And it's going to be a great time. And I'm going to go for 24 hours without sleep and just talking and interviewing people. And I will be a wretched mess by the end of it. Isn't it worth tuning in just for that? Anyway, getting on to tonight's guest, though. He is a Canadian actor, director and musician who in 2015 released his first full-length feature, A Dozen Summers. Last year, he released his comedic uh, and thought-provoking autobiography bisection about bipolar disorder, parenting twins and growing up in a cult. He's now back this year with Regenerations, a Doctor Who charity anthology book he edited for Chin Beard Productions, or Chin Beard Books, even productions, maybe they produce as well. Here to talk to me about this and so much more, please welcome to the Dr. Squee Show, Kenton Hall. How are you doing, Hello. Kenton? I find it very shiny, apparently. <laughs> my camera has decided that I have an inner glow that I need to get across today. Uh, this is not what I feel like, so the camera does lie quite extremely. I've been in my house for four months, so this is what happens. Uh, you get very white. I've got my winter plumage on and my regeneration has begun, as you mentioned. Uh, <laughs> I'm very good. I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, we were just, we're just discussing before we went on camera. Like, this isn't uh, you being faded out by the camera. This is you getting very method to talk about regenerations by um, starting to regenerate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, I, I, I was just saying earlier to someone, like... Uh, I'm not as good as, as, as some people who, like, when this all began, I lost half my work, so I'm working uh, part-time. But I'm better than people who don't have any work and, like, live in the third world or something. So, I, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I think perspective has been really important. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I was similar. I, I, I was just gearing up for a summer of acting work, and then that all uh, fell away, obviously. But we've got through, and my kids are fed, and my kids are happy and i've been writing so i i count myself very very fortunate so plus i really like being in my house 
as opposed to being outside. So I feel for people that enjoy outsideness and and other people because I, I I understand this must have been much harder for them because I I now I just have less people telling me I should go outside, which has been marvelous. It saved me so much time. <laughs> I also love the fact that whenever you start to complain about anything in 2020, they go, oh, you think so? How about this then? And it's like it either does something horrific to you or shows you other people going through something much more horrific where it's like, oh, so I can't complain about this either. Okay, I'm shutting up, shutting up. That's good. That's fine. I have this with my my twins very often. You know, they'll start complaining about something and because they're quite politically minded and sort of social consciences have been grown they, they go oh i shouldn't complain about that and i do have to remind them that like we are trapped inside these flesh suits our pain is our pain so there's a balance to be struck you know you're allowed to feel things at the same time as keeping perspective of what's going on in the rest of the world um but yeah no i mean obviously a lot of people have, have been suffering and that's that's far worse than any inconveniences that the rest of us have put up with so you know, but it'll it'll be we've we've been living through history as always, but in a particular one, there'll be whole chapters on this in the future. So, I was there when, and I know exactly where I was. Where were you when the Corona pandemic uh, hit? I was at home. Yeah. Where were you? It's going to be a very common answer. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's either going to be at home or I was one of those at the beach. Yeah, when Kennedy was at Shaw, everybody was everywhere. It just gets complicated. This whole chapter can be. Group Britain. Yeah. Where were you? I was in my house. I was watching Netflix. That's what I was doing the entire time. And what did you do, yeah, Squee? Well, I started a video podcast. Oh, another one, really? <laughs> I, did. I did. I did one. I did one live performance at the very beginning, feeling like as a musician I should chuck in a song, and I was like, "There's no point." <laughs> I'll just perform at home and pretend people are watching because the two people that will choose my performance over the 90 million other ones, they could just come around and look through the window. You know, they're allowed to do that. That's fine. <laughs> the sound quality would be better. Uh, speaking of which, you did say you've been working on some music while this has all been going on. So uh, yeah. how's that getting on? I was, I, I was semi-retired as a songwriter for a very long time. Um, uh, the last full-length album I put out was about 10 years ago, um, film, and, and I'd done bits for film, and I you know, kind of carried on doing bits of music, but this last sort of year or so, an old, uh, a member of the first line of my band moved back into Leicester, where, where I am, so I'm especially locked down, um, and kind of poked me with a stick to start writing again so i said oh i'll do whatever's in my bottom drawer well let's just get them out and then i'd written two more albums of songs and it's just it refuses to stop now so now i have to actually get them all down on on tape and get on tape because <laughs> uh, i'm doing this in 1983 um i have to get them down on it in digital <laughs> and get them out there and reclaim my previous career as a songwriter somehow I mean, it's something nice about about when someone has like many strings to their bow, like yourself, being able to switch between modalities of kind of writing, acting, uh, doing some songwriting. Like, is that is that what keeps it fresh for you? Uh, yeah, I think so. And also, it's a great way of managing disillusionment because whatever whatever I, I'm doing, I want to be doing one of the other things, and that keeps that's what really keeps it fresh is that I can procrastinate 
from writing by playing the guitar, and I can procrastinate from playing the guitar by preparing a part for an acting. So I, I just basically, I just take all my flaws and I set them at war with each other, and then I've built, I've built my career around that equation, which is just, I will end up doing this other thing because I don't want to do that, right? <laughs> and that's how it gets done. It, it does ring something very true. So like having kind of uh, immersed myself in a bit of your writing and kind of uh, your stuff over the last kind of week, it does strike me that it, it's very apt for you to measure yourself by things that you're, uh, you've, in your own perspective, failing at, not things that you're doing well at. <laughs> I don't know that that's that unusual. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I do subscribe to the whole, the un- unanalyzed life is not worth living, but yeah. I perhaps take it to its extremes. Um, I think I'm just, I think particularly, I think if you've read if you've read any of my section and then you kind of you know this i'm in a very i'm still in that transitory period where i'm on medication and the world is very real and a lot of clarity about that i didn't have for the first 30 odd years of my life and so everything's kind of like oh so that's how you do that in a real world is it okay so there's a lot of pre-measuring going on but like I say, the kids have survived. That's really, that's the only metric I really hold myself to. Kids seem fine. They don't seem scarred in any way. They got to <laughs> university. They had two completely different set of grades that they were happy with. And it's fine, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm redrafted because now, like, my kids are leaving home. I got to figure out how to do this all over again without the sort of responsibility that I've had daily for the last 18 years. So it's a whole new thing. Yeah. Um, I was planning to stay in my house and do nothing, so that, that's working out well so far. <laughs> yeah, your 2020 goals are being met, actually. Yeah, that's right, exactly. I'm, I'm nailing it. I am killing it on 2020. <laughs> Well, you, you mentioned bisection there. I did. That is what I wanted to start off with, because usually I take guests through their kind of like uh, career on this show. And uh, you've neatly laid out like your life and career in, in a book there, which kind of helps me out. Uh, so you describe you longest, longest and worst Tinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with kind of... like crazy Canadians. <laughs> I do actually. I'm a big fan, <laughs> but um, no. I was just going to say, like, it, it just really does strike me that kind of you write in a very raw and real way. Was that something very important to you going in? Like, you've 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 couched it as a comedic look back, but there's kind of a lot of truth and a lot of kind of uh, hard hitting stuff in there as well. I, I I find it difficult to decide what I've done deliberately. Any project that I work on at some point after flailing around, I hit on a kind of kernel or something that is what I want to talk about. And then I kind of just stick, keep going back to that whenever it gets a messy. But this wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a book I was planning to write. Um, I had lots of writing projects that are circling me and I'd just come off the film, which was obviously a huge thing and kind of took a bit of a toll. And it was funny that uh, my publisher now, just Chinbeard Books slash Productions slash Extravaganza. Yeah. Um, I'd been writing, I wrote about bipolar and about the kids largely on blogs and stuff to one, to keep my writing muscle flexed, but also because it felt like that kind of personal stuff was kind of ad hoc and you'd write about what was on your mind in that moment. And the publisher came to me and said, if you ever wanted to collect all of that stuff, they'd publish it. And I said, well, I don't really want to do that. I don't want you know, this is stuff I've written at 
two o'clock in the morning. It was taking me twenty minutes, and I haven't really edited it. I, I'd like to write something from scratch if we're going to do a book. Uh, and then I realized that, like, the story I wanted to tell was not my autobiography so much as it was the story of these four people: myself, and my daughters, and bipolar disorder as the fourth person. And that's kind of how it got structured that way. But I do think, I mean, I consider myself a comic writer. What I'd really like to be is, more than anything else, is that old-fashioned word. I don't even know if they have me. A humorist. You know, a humorist like like, like Dave Barry or or uh, Thurber. Uh, you know, someone who writes comic essays on the world. That would be my ideal job. Um, but I think, for my, my theories of comedy, are always that the best jokes come out of really serious stuff. And because I think it, it builds... Being open builds a trust with your audience, which means it's easier for them to laugh. Um, and if you're coming at them with something hard-hitting and then you give them the refill of a joke, they laugh harder. And vice versa, if you if you have an audience laughing and you really want to take them down the rabbit hole, then that's the best time to get them, because then it's a bit of a kidney punch. So this sounds a very cruel and abusive relationship I have with my audience. Whether <laughs> <laughs> I'm either giving a bit of relief and then smacking them <laughs> when they're not looking... So no, I love my audience. They all three of them are great. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I I don't know how to write. Everything I write that ends up having jokes in it. It's just my nature. But I did, I did think that a lot of the books I've read surrounding mental health have tended to be very dour, and I can understand that because it is a serious subject. But as painful as living with a mental health condition has been, and as I mean. It's had these moments of utter despair. It has also been intensely ridiculous. And my life for that reason has been intensely ridiculous. And I didn't seem, it didn't seem honest not to tell it that way. But at the same time, you're always very kind of clear in the book about talking about the fact that I'm not making light of any of these things. I'm bringing light to these things. And I think for me, that's, that's a very important, um, division in humor because i think there is there is that feeling that if you joke about things that somehow you say you don't take them seriously and i don't think that's true i joke about i make jokes about the things i take most seriously because that's because i think humor is an incredible balm and yeah. needs to be applied to the wounds of the world not to the frivolous things you know the frivolous things are funny in themselves it doesn't take comedians to make frivolous things funny it takes comedians to make serious things funny I think there's also this thing about like with humor especially but also with kind of I think the art that you are into gives you permission to make your own art and gives you permission to so like and, and humor especially it kind of gives you permission to like because I'm doing in humor I can say what I actually really think hmm. yeah absolutely and I, I think that I think that's true as well I mean I'm very aware I think like all comic writers about the the many ways in which our social conversation is changing and I think it's really important to audit yourself um, but, and I did experience a little bit of kickback with bisexual with people going how can you joke about this and, my, and, and the thing is with anyone that ever asks you that question provided you have a, a defense that you can actually get behind and articulate then you're fine yeah. I joke about these things because I have to because joking about them help me survive so uh, that seems like enough of an answer to me 
Yeah. Um, but also I'm talking about parenting, I'm talking about life, I'm talking about things that have a kind of natural humor component. They're just being seen through the lens of someone whose grasp on reality is fluid at times. And, you know, it, and with it looking back, I don't, I don't know, I always swore I would never write a memoir of any kind, largely because I would have to cut out so much <laughs> to spare the blushes of anyone that's ever met me. And so I figured that this was a safe way of doing that and talking about my own stuff by giving it a kind of framework. Um, and, and like all of it happened, like generally it's, it's that same rule of pick the thing that is the most, seems like it might be the most exaggerated for comic effect. And that's the thing that's being told absolutely verbatim. And the thing that the other, the stuff that I may have tweaked, this timeline of is the stuff that was just way weirder and no way of getting it down in prose the way it actually happened moment by moment. So it's been that kind of life. But yeah, it's a book I'm very proud of. So I've had, for the same reason I think you would be with a work like that when you've had people say that they've come to you and say that it's helped them to understand it a little bit better. Because it helped me to understand it a little bit better. I think it's like teaching you. The act of writing it allowed me to coalesce my thoughts on that first phase of my life better than just sitting around and staring at my navel ever would have. So, um, the fine navel, though, you know, it does, <laughs> it does stand a little bit of staring, but, you know, it gets shy after a while. Uh, I, I, whenever someone uses the term navel uh, for their belly button, it always makes me think of, God, I think it was Norman Lira. Uh, he did these audio kind of things, and there was one where he said about, uh, it was like an interview with him, and he says uh, his favorite organ was his belly button because he likes to eat celery in the bath and it gives him a nice, convenient place to hold the salt. It's got nothing to do with anything, but it just made me think of that. Oh. You still with me, Kenton? <laughs> Sorry, I lost you for a second. Still got me? Yeah, yeah, you're back now. Sorry, um, my random belly button uh, story apparently lost you for a second <laughs> on the video. That's it. I ran. No, I mean, he's going to talk about belly buttons. I'm yeah. out of here. Oh, very dirty. Uh, I mean, the one thing which did strike me is that it feels like uh, with the autobiography, as much as it is about your life, it also gave you, uh, again, permission maybe to talk about some other stuff which you wanted to talk about, just like this stuff you had uh, views on, such as toxic masculinity comes up in one section, and it just seems to be kind of like... Uh, your the way you see that like uh, so it's like it was almost telling more about you than just your life in a sequence and i think i think that's probably the closest you're going to get to knowing anybody is if you actually really hear as honest as possible uh, a view of what they think i mean that's those sections those little inter intermissions um they that is basically what I think about <laughs> most of the time. That's the stuff. I think being a writer, you do a lot of that where people always ask that, that question. It's like, where do you get your ideas from? The classic answer is, oh, there's a woman in a shop in Kensington uh, does them at a great price. But most of it is just you circle an idea because you think and you think and you work through what you feel about certain things and until that attaches to a story that enables you to tell that. And I think with with this yeah i was able to kind of the trick was i was trying to show what it is actually like in my mind 
and how a bipolar mind functions. And I think having those little interjections throughout is quite accurate to the way that I process life um, on good and bad days. That, that I will zoom off on a massively deep tangent on on something and then I'll come back to regular life. And so it's as good a representation, the structure of the book itself, of how my mind works or fails to work, as it is the case on many occasions. I did want to take it right back. So, like, uh, you describe yourself as growing up in a cult. Tell, tell us a bit about yes. that. Yeah, it's a weird way. That, like, if I hadn't been a writer, all of this would have been wasted. Like, you don't get a lot of sort of plumbers get a chance to talk about their early years in a cult. I grew up in a very strict malarian cult um, that was very much an us and them. Uh, these people are have God's grace and the rest of them are going to get killed in many godly ways and, 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 and kind of isolated from the world. Lived in the day-to-day, but in particular as a child, you were isolated from what children you could play with, that could only be other members of the church, which meant your friends weren't necessarily people that you would choose to be your friends. In fact, some of them were awful. Um, uh, you grew up. I grew up in a very patriarchal, very homophobic um, household with with a sociopathic mother and a psychopathic father. It's it's a recipe for a soap opera, really. Mm. Um, and the only. The only really good thing I got out of it was the fact that because I know the Bible back to front, I can easily decipher Bob Dylan lyrics. Um, that's literally the only skill it's giving me. Um, Sounds like Pendulette's uh, views on uh, religion as well. <laughs> yeah, it's just it, it was just really it was a really psychologically damaging religion because it it preyed on the vulnerable in terms of the type of converts it tried to get. And it made, kept its own people frightened and vulnerable by a combination of brainwashing and mind control techniques and all manner of things like that. Um, and, and tried to pretend to just be a little sort of Christian offshoot where, it, where it's like there was like really deeply dodgy stuff going on. And, but it, what, I think the upshot of that is this, it was literature that got me out of the mindset because you'd have, on one hand, you'd have sort of my parents going, ah, the gays. And I was sitting there reading, like, Forster and Wilde and going, oh, no, I like them way better than I like you. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 that does sound like bad bunch. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry. My, my father was a type of man who once accused me of being gay because I was crying about a girl. So he wasn't really connecting a lot of dots. Um I don't like, as you say in the book, I didn't turn out about a, a bisexual on a sort of 80 20 split. Um, <laughs> I, I do love it when you describe yourself as 20% gay. It's a wonderful it's phrasing. A, it, it, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't count because if you're 80% straight, you're not, you only get 20% of the hassle about the gay yeah. people are getting. So you, don't, you don't, get to, don't get to wear the t shirt. You're going to stand behind and clap. That's what yeah. you get when you're twenty percent gay. You can be supportive, but you don't get you don't you don't need any attention for it. You haven't really suffered from it. I've suffered from a lot of things, but not that. You know, it's like I was um, 
I was a musician and actor. If I occasionally snog a guy, no one's going to blink an eye. I'm never going to get beat up for it. You know, it's just the circles in which I travel, I have not suffered for that. So, whoa, 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 whoa. You're suggesting there's gay fellas in the performing arts? No, no, I will not have this. First I've heard of this. No, it's shocking. I have two different drinks. How very extravagant of me. No, so, yeah, it's, it's something. I mean, I'm very, very sort of interested in and supportive of the, the move to have sort of more uh, LGBTQ voices in, in, in the arts and sort of I think like what gets pointed, pointed as diversity in, as though that's a negative is just a case of opening the door so that more voices get heard. We're constantly complaining that the same stories get told all the time and then we want to keep out people who might tell slightly different stories from a slightly different angle because the human race is stupid and I wouldn't have it in the house. <laughs> but in theory, I'm in, I'm in favour. But I think that growing up out in a cult, to go back to the question because I am paying attention, um, what it what it does is if you're, you're pulled so separate away from the world into such a little closed environment that when you get out you literally have no preconceptions anymore because you, you've decided for yourself you're going to cast off all the preconceptions of your youth wholesale and then you've got the rest of the world and you kind of have to go ah what okay and you figure it out for yourself which I don't think a lot of people ever have the opportunity to do that's why we have generational racism generational sexism stuff that's not predicated on necessarily a, a self-made hateful feeling but it's just been passed down generation to generation and given no reason to challenge it i was given a reason to challenge everything and i can't say that i got it right all the time absolutely cannot say that with it in a straight face let alone actual truth um well 80 percent straight face 80 percent um <laughs> The twenty percent is much better than the eighty. Um, <laughs> but it it, I, it it has created a personality that tends towards challenging things and wanting to figure them out for myself. Whether I get that right or wrong, I want to figure it out for myself. And I think that's that's a healthy trait in a writer anyway. But I think with a society that's evolving, it's it's important to think for yourself. Um, but not not in that way that you become automatically antagonistic towards the opposite point of view. But that just you take the time to examine it um, and not not um, react to everything, but actually sort of take it in, figure out what you actually feel about it. And I think being in a cult taught me that by its absence from the sort of life I had as a child where you didn't question and these are the rules, despite the fact that if you picked them apart, they were quite, quite insane. And so, but if you, you know, when you've got a mental health condition like bipolar, you are wired to believe all sorts of weird stuff. So if some, if your parents come to you when you're born and go, here's the weird stuff you believe, and you go, okay, that saves some time. And, and you move on on that base, and you believe it 100% um, until you discover Oscar Wilde and realize that you, you want a completely different world and you're interested in a completely different world and um my father did say to me once in, in all seriousness he's like oh you don't want to get into into music son you know it's full of his sex and drugs like that is the worst sales pitch i have ever heard for <laughs> yeah. not getting involved in the arts sex and drugs you say oh well that's terrible i don't, won't be wanting any of those 
here being a 15-year-old boy in a religious cult. None of that's ever crossed my mind, you lunatic. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what's the first point you remember actually starting to question it or like maybe how do you start to hear the differing voices or is it just like uh, you start to realize yourself I mean I think I mean I, I know for a fact it was I, I read voraciously from the time I was about this sounds dreadfully but I learned to read like at three and immediately just started digging through every book I could get my hands on and it was the fact that I couldn't, I was being told to hate people that I, fictional people that I'd grown to love and that had brought me comfort and the direction to do otherwise is being fed to me by people who were actively abusing me. So, you know, but at some point I realized I, the first transition that I made was not ceasing to believe, but one, but beginning to wish that it wasn't true. Which is that was like the first stage of the of the mutiny, which is like I do I, I at the moment I can't shake this feeling that this is all true, but I really wish it wasn't. Um, that's kind of like the methadone of the atheistic experience, yeah. which is to actually wish wish God away before you go. Well, do you know what? You can just you know say he's not there and move on, but that takes a little bit longer. But um, yeah, that it was. It was just, I think, like everything, being exposed to other types of people and being able to see. And I think that's what literature is great at. Is and 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 books in particular. Although you know, I am a huge lover of music and film, but books allow you access to the interior landscape of people other than yourself. And when you find something that you relate to inside the mind of someone else, then you you're led along the path of being able to accept things you might not have accepted before or understand things you might not have understood before because it's given you a little in. Because I always say it's like the fact that we know anyone to any degree in this life is a miracle because we're inside looking out. Everything we see and feel and hear is bent into shape by our experiences and our, pre our prejudices. And then we're expected to come up to someone else that has a completely different set of experiences and expect for us to see see the world the same way that's yeah. one of my major problems with religion it's a whole any group of people saying we all believe the same thing and i'm like you do not you may think you do we don't even see the color red the same we've just chosen a group name for seven billion different colors and it's like that with everything else and i think we just need to you know own up to that sometimes that we never know anyone, and but the fact that we get a shot at it, the fact that we can work towards knowing people better, is that's what always opens up the world, and that's what that's what art can do on its good days. Not its bad days; it can still entertain you, and then you know, give you a little kiss on the forehead, make you feel a little bit better. But on its really good days, it can open the world out to you, and then you try to apply those lessons to real life, try to actually assume that there's more going on behind anyone's facade than you're than you assume from the first instance which is i think you know i think first impressions they say first impressions last but they're the most dangerous impressions they are because they were they're without information yep. you have no context for a first impression and yet that's our, our world is built around first impressions which are almost always inaccurate <laughs> 
because there's, there just isn't enough information for them to be functional. Now, you, you can see now why the book is full of tangents on various subjects, because it's just how I am. <laughs> Tangents are all good. We, we tangents means um, yeah, airtime for me. So <laughs> tangents are good. Oh, no, that's, a, that's all right. That's fine. No, but, um, the with working like you know, you're so you're you're in this cult. You're you're trying to experience all this different uh, these different types of art, these different voices. Do you have to kind of like sneak these things in? Is this stuff they handed you going? Look how awful this is. Like you know, and you you took to it or how did you how do you get a hold of all this wonderful medium I, I i kind of became quite sort of independent and i don't i i think they just at a certain point weren't paying attention to what i was reading because it was the one thing that they couldn't actually they were taking them time and effort to sit and read the books i was reading and work it out um so I was hitting libraries, I was hitting second-hand bookshops, I was just filling my room up with books, and I think what they thought was always quiet, it'll keep them out of trouble. Um, but I was reading everything, everything I could get my hands on. Like, they had no books of their own in the house. They had, like, 80,000 biblical study books and one copy of When Bears Attack, because my father was paranoid about the woods. And he came from Preston in Lancashire, and had experienced the same amount of weather than anyone from Preston, Lancashire, which was like rain and cold rain and warm rain. And then he got to Canada, which has all the weather, which has like tornadoes and all manner of extreme special effects weather. And yeah. he did not take to it well, nor did he take to the wild animals walking about in certain parts of the country well either. Um, so he had a book called When Bears Attacked. He was the kind of phobic that would read as much information as he could get on the thing he was phobic about right. so as to frighten himself. Yeah, and so, yeah, so is it, this is the stock I come from. Is it any wonder that I've become an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a burrito? Um, just mad people, mad people, and not in a good way like me. It's pleasantly mad most of the time. Yeah. Um, now <laughs> wasn't so yeah no i just i sought it out and i and i'm and i'm quite obsessive by nature so when i found an author i would have to read everything by that author and then in some note about that i would find another author mentioned then i would have to read everything by that author and before i knew it i was getting through you know four or five hundred books a year and now my head is full of stuff people often say like, how, how have you read so many books and I'm like I don't know <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of years when there was no sex on offer and I had books so <laughs> it, just seemed, it wasn't a fair trade off but it does mean I know a lot of weird arcane things I do love the idea that it was like well it was either sex or I would just read a lot <laughs> that was my choice those are my choices no, I didn't have a choice. Those were the choices I, I would like to have had. Yeah. The choice I had was read the books or sit and stare at the books wishing I was having sex. Those were the choices I had. So I thought I might as well be proactive and positive and actually read the damn thing. Okay. Um, Those were theoretically the two choices. Yeah. <laughs> I, was not, I was not beating them off with a stick as a young man or... Uh, older man or a middle-aged man I, I i was waving the stick as if to say i'm over here and, and they were running 
massive fire in the other direction shouting, he's got a stick. Yeah. So, um... I, I think that might have been the problem. It's like you try to go at people with sticks. That That's not the way you... That's know, not foreplay. This is, as I said, toxic masculinity. Don't me to carry a stick about all the time. Never... <laughs> Never, never send uh, an unsolicited stick pic. That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you go though from uh, then experiencing this wonderful art and obviously a lot of reading uh, to then uh, producing your like to, to th even thinking that that was a thing you could do? Like, given where you were, I think that's I. I often think about like that transition, and I think it was. I caught myself in that moment when I got out that I could believe that anything was possible because I'd just come off believing some really weird things. So why couldn't I be a musician? Why couldn't I be a writer? I'd always wanted to be. And I, and I do think there's a certain... It, it is one thing that I give credit to the way my mental illness functions is that that sheer belief that you sometimes see in certain wealthy bipolars on the news of really believing you can do something sometimes gets you some really hard patches but the rest of the world telling you you can't that really psychotic fantasies of being able to do certain things and but then i'm picking that stuff that i actually can do tolerably well um and that's not a fantasy i actually can't do it it just doesn't mean i'm going to be able to take over the world without do the work um that shit was probably more difficult to make than deciding i could do it because i came out of the other side of life god now i have got popular uh i've stuck my head uh side of uh cult life with this idea that well I must have suffered all of this for a reason because yeah. you're still kind of in a manic frame of mind after you've been brought up that way you just shift the emphasis of it so I'm like I'm going to come out of this terrible uh, terrible child oh Kenton we're just losing you slightly you still there sir Hey, Hello. and we're back in the room. Hey, excellent. Where was I? Uh, you were talking about like yeah, uh, just for, I, th I think you were starting to talk about like how you found your way out. Let's let's continue on from there. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So finding my way out once I'd made the decision wasn't very difficult. I think the the hard part was once I got out deciding what I was going to do and how I was going to function in the world. And there's something, there was a, there's a quote by G.K. Chesterton who wrote the Father Brown Mysteries, where he says, the trouble with when people stop believing in God is not that they believe in nothing, but they'll believe in anything. So suddenly, when, when, you have, when you've given up your whole underpinning, you don't even have any kind of lurking stuff, you have to kind of rebuild a moral universe for yourself from scratch, yeah. and from scratch of, of the real world that you've kind of been fed over time. And I think I, I went straight in for a huge dramatic one um, for a very long time and kind of dealt with kind of my natural trauma and my natural shyness that came from kind of my upbringing and constructed a sort of stage persona that wasn't afraid of anything 
and certainly wasn't traumatized by anything, but was also a nightmare. Because <laughs> he was fine when he was on stage, but he bled so quickly and easily into real life that for a good 10 years, I just, I lived a bad telenovela, yeah, just extreme drama all the time. And it made perfect sense to me. And I was always slightly perturbed that everyone else seemed to think it was weird. Because I'm like, this is my life. It's fine. No, of course. I should have woken up here. I should be wearing this sombrero. And and, and then, then I added alcohol into that mix and the occasional bout of other intoxicants. And it, it all collided rather strongly. And, and convinced myself that that's what I wanted to do as well. And but then parenthood came along and suddenly you start sort of asking yourself very different questions. And that happened quite quickly. I think the girls were born about a couple of years actually after I properly got out. I've been working on it for about 10 years. When I fled to England, um, you know, this bastion of free speech and democracy. Yeah. We have good moments. I, 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 I thought it was Masterpiece Theatre, you know, I thought it was like everyone was going to be Stephen Fry um, and or Hugh Laurie, and I was fine with that. I'm so in love with Stephen Fry. Yeah, and I'd be fine with that. My 20% camp. Uh, climb him like a tree. Now he's married. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and apparently he likes him younger. No, look, I'm just saying, just literally, just eat his, his husband's younger than him. That's right. No judging. They seem a perfectly happy couple. <laughs> I, I, it's um, it must be so weird, like just the timing of it as well. So you get out of the cult, and like a few, like you said, a year later, you were, uh, you had the probably about, about two years later. Two years, think, sir. Yeah, about eight months, two years later. That's then, quite a roller coaster. Yes. So it was, yeah, it was life shifting gears rapidly. <laughs> Uh, and again, it was one of those things that I think it would have been really easy to panic in that circumstance. We had no money. I was a struggling artist. I had twins. Um, but it was just another huge dramatic thing. You know, it, I just kind of folded it into the to the insanity of what was going on around me, and never it never occurred to me that. It occurred to me loads of times that I could screw it up, but it never occurred to me that I just physically couldn't do it. Like, I panicked all the time about the effect that I would have on my children, but I never thought, oh my god, what do I do? I just did it because I didn't have any choice. And I think sometimes bipolar does give you that bridge because you don't have any time to think about it because your brain is about three steps ahead of you going, oh no, we've already started reacting to this now, so you better catch up. It doesn't always do a good job of it, but it is quick. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of quali- not much quality, but a lot of quantity in terms of bipolar decision making. Um, yeah, and then I don't know. It's kind of some of it is difficult to remember very clearly because I think that there were peaks of being really quite poorly through that time. Um, but again, it's one of those things where being in the arts kind of enables it a little bit because nobody notices quite as much. You can mask a lot of symptoms behind a persona, 
uh, behind sort of the kind of stuff that particularly 20 something musicians all are trying to appear to be a rock star and maybe two or three out of every 20 are actually kind of falling apart on the inside and that's why they're acting like a rock star um and i was in the, it was in that mix so i was i was the that loopy over the top front man where, where in fact i was just really 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 ill um and just running running hot all the time not sleeping just up all night i was going for 2 a.m feeding so to come back from gigs feed the kids then stay awake for another few hours and start to see stuff which is good because i could show them to the kids look let's see those pink elephants over there lovely aren't they and they'd go sure <laughs> see he fed us it's fine <laughs> i mean the, the, the thing which like just uh it makes me think so well actually i'll, I'll do the question first when do you start to kind of like realize that it's a mental health issue you've got and not just like the craziness of the world you find yourself because i I would imagine like having experienced that cult and then suddenly going from that to having um a couple of children and then at the same time you're in the arts like the i think the craziness of all that could almost mask a mental health issue in so many other things yeah, and I think it's it's not unusual for people with bipolar disorder to get diagnosed most readily when they're in a, in a depression because it's much more visible from a medical perspective that someone, unless, unless you've gone full-blown into full-blown psychosis, which I have once or twice, but oftentimes the mania doesn't get quite that high, just making bad decisions. Um, but with a depression and... and, and anyone that's you know whatever things the, the the suicidal impulses that come with that that's when you tend to get um people start to recognize it because they they kind of have a better idea of what that looks like i think a lot of people could identify depression but wouldn't necessarily be able to identify mania hmm. because it some of it is you behave in exactly the same way that someone else might behave just because they're an ass um and it's difficult to tell the difference between someone who's doing it because they're an idiot and someone who's doing it because their brain is telling them lies. Um, whereas depression, I think, at least people recognize it. Whether they respect it is a different question altogether, but they recognize it. So I think I got caught when I crashed into a very bad depression and, and became a danger to myself. And that was when I was diagnosed. And it, but even it's taken me 15, 15 years since my diagnosis to really unpick what stuff is my personality and what stuff is mania. Um, because since I've been back on medication, which kind of prompted the book as well, um, I, I've changed my opinion on a lot of things and certainly my behavior on, on issues and areas of my life that I never imagined for a moment had anything to do with my illness. Um, my personalities shifted um, and I hadn't even realized some of it. I'll run into people I haven't seen for a long time and they'll just say, you are much quieter than you used to be. And it doesn't, it just doesn't occur to me to be, I know it doesn't seem like it, but I, you know, I'm professionally talking now. Um, but it used to be me on a tire raid five times faster than me talking now and without a break or a breath just constantly and no volume control and um <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> my 
my last girlfriend had a series of kind of like small signals which are meant to say you need to calm the hell down <laughs> now before somebody punches you in the face um and just, i had to be kind of like trained in trained socially like a puppy um oh yeah okay so talk quieter stop talking stop talking okay i'll stop talking um but now yeah i i've gone back to sort of what i think one that must have been my starting point as a child of being quite a quiet bookish sort of person i love my tension spans come back um, i don't think i'd be writing books which can be like six months of kind of intense long work film was good for me as a writer because i can write it quite quickly and then you can adjust as you go you know you can be rewriting on set you can be watching actors do it and i can change a line whereas prose it goes down to the page and is done and i don't think i had the attention span for that for a long time i'm not dismissing the work of screenwriters it's, yeah. for me i found it um a much less intensive from my own perspective way of writing same with songs i suppose as well is there's a discipline to condensing a story into three and a half minutes but also you only have to write three and a half minutes worth of material um whereas now that i'm working on more more in prose i'm finding that i i'm finally able to do it the way i've always wanted to which is to with the concentration to look at the fine detail and so yeah it's 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 constant journey of discovery every day i run into something where I'll come up against a, a question or something in life that I haven't for a while, and I'll go, well, what, did I, what would I have done previously? And then I remember, and then I go, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do that. That's that's a terrible idea. And some of it, of course, is being older. You know, it, yeah. it, it's very easy to kind of, when you have a very, well, I think Stephen Fry has said this, it's very easy to become professionally bipolar as well. You know, there is there is a genuine real me underneath all of that that has nothing to do with it, but it has affected like every corner of my life at some stage, um, and in its absence, as much as I mean, and it's still there, still tugging at the lead in the back of my head. I've just got a little bit of breathing space for the first time in my life, um, so it's yeah, it continues to be an interesting shift. Well, one thing which I did find really interesting, because it's something which really jived with me, is the, uh, I think anyone who's kind of creative does have this tussle between kind of like what's healthily creative and what's kind of like getting lost in yourself. And especially when you wrote about bipolar and you discussed this whole thing of like the medication, it helped you greatly. Uh, but it was, it was something, I'm paraphrasing you here, so please do correct me uh, if I go off. Uh, like what what you were trying to say but it felt like you were saying that it's almost like part of what it does is masking it is mask that's just part of it and that there's always that part of you which is always going well i could just go off it i could go off then i'd be free to be me and i could like uh, and i could unleash all these ideas if i didn't have this kind of like this control over it uh can you speak a bit about that because that really rang true for me as well i think I, I mean, I resisted uh, medication for a long, long time. I had a brief flirtation with it when I was first diagnosed, and I got prescribed the wrong thing, and I had a terrible experience with it. And that was my excuse that I used for not taking it for a lot of years. I'll handle it. I'll do coping strategies. And while they are very helpful, they're not the be-all and end-all. They certainly didn't work for me. Um, 
but yeah, there are there are still days where I think because I do work slower, much slower than I used to. I and I get to ideas by a more circuitous route. When I was off my meds, I could make huge intuitive leaps of imagination because my brain was short circuiting itself. Uh, to get to where it was going or ideas would pop fully formed because they'd been spinning in the back of my subconscious and while I was being crazy over here and I'm allowed to use the crazy word I, I decided I'm reclaiming it um, but it, 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 there are very few days now I think if I started medication 10 years ago I don't think I'd have lasted on it because the first six months um, back on medication were horrible, 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 horrible. It felt like I was being like physically rewritten from the inside out. Just I couldn't keep track of myself, couldn't keep track of my emotions. I didn't know what was going on. And then it leveled out. And I suddenly realized that I woke up one morning and I was not. And I realized that I had been in pain of some kind or another every single day of my life up until that point and the first day you wake up and it's never goes away and medication has its own side effects but you got so used to that screaming voice at the back of your mind that when it went away it was the first time you actually noticed it was there um so i i'm rarely tempted to come off and unleash but there are times there are certainly times where i think I don't, I, I kind of want to feel everything the way I felt it before. Because I think I probably have a normal person's full range of human emotions. They just don't feel like it to me. Because my emotions, all of them, have always been turned up to 11 for my entire life. And now they're at about three. And that difference feels like numbness sometimes. But I know that it's not. I know that I still love my children i know that i still have love for other people in my life i just not racked with it constantly which is what happened with every emotion under the sun when i was on it i think if i hadn't become so quickly aware of how much of a difference is made to my ability to function and to be there for other people then i think i would be tempted to come off and, and reclaim that sort of more immediately creative side of myself. I was fortunate that it turned out that I could still write and that I found ways to still write and I was happy with the work. If I hadn't been able to write, I don't know what would have happened then. Um, I found a way, maybe just by the same bloody mindedness that's got me this far, I found a way to rework my process to function through the medication. And if I hadn't been able to do that, which was my fear all along, then maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have been as stalwart for long enough to feel the, feel the benefit. But, yeah, I'm very self-aware about it now. I know that even the days where I go, I want to feel something more, and I go, yeah, but do you do remember what you felt <laughs> and that it was largely unpleasant? Oh, yeah, fine, okay, I'll have a biscuit. And, and they like, no, don't have a biscuit because the, the pills make you put on a lot of weight. Fine, I'll have a carrot. <laughs> Stop. this internal monologue is me <laughs> yeah it's a day-to-day -day thing I 
I'm always aware of the fact that these these meds could stop working. My body will get used to them. I might have to start again with something else. I've had one or two times where through the pandemic where my pills haven't been available and I've had two days of heroin style withdrawal, um, just curled in a fetal position waiting for boots to ring, which is just just a terrible terrible experience waiting for boots to ring to save you it's just not unless it's a puss in boots then i i'm not interested in that boots the opticians cannot cannot come around my house and save me and things like that remind you that you're medicated and that you're probably going to be medicated for the rest of your life that you're dependent on them and i think that's what people don't like about it they they don't like the idea of being dependent where i've kind of come around to that i don't like the idea of being sick yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and I don't like that you can say more than I don't like the idea of being dependent on some medication. You know, so I I think it's just it's um I mean obviously for anyone who needs medication to function in any way, whether it's physically or mentally, that is a deeply kind of like um, scary thing to kind of like as soon as you bring medication to who you are as a person, that's that's very scary. Yeah. And like if you work creatively, that's your bread and butter. Like you know, I know I think there is something inherently um mercurial about kind of like the creative brain and like you know i think part of it does always dance with the uh with mental illness in one way or the other so yeah, when you then start yeah. monkeying around with it with medication that's hugely scary uh yeah um to get to get back to the work though sir uh a couple of things i did want to talk about obviously we'll get on to regeneration in just a second uh but uh first of all i did want to talk about the film so uh, a dozen summers yeah. So, uh, like, that, that was a one-man kind of band operation, almost, it feels like. <laughs> well, I worked too. Um, no, as I, I, I produced that um, with Alexander Jackson, um, who now works at the BFI, supporting a lot of other filmmakers um, with their projects. Um, yeah, it was, it was made on a shoestring. It was made using a shoestring. Everything was made of shoestrings. Um but it was one that, like everything, I think, like I was talking about earlier, it's like there were, there was a much more sensible film to make for my first feature, which would have been like two people in a room um, arguing about a tin of beans or something, something that you're supposed to shoot for your first feature film, something. But the story that I wanted to tell, the story I felt like I needed to tell and that I was engaged by at the time was my twins and the fact that I didn't feel like their day-to-day life, what it was actually like to be 12 as they were, 11, 12 as they were at the time, was being represented. We always had coming-of-age films. It was always about the next stage along. It was always about growing into being a, a grown-up, about you know taking on the adult world. And when I looked at them, that's not what I saw. They just they got up in the morning, and they were 12 all day, and they were 12 the next day, and that was their life. They didn't they weren't always thinking about being 13. Sometimes they were just thinking about being Friday and being 12. And and I saw all the influences that they were pulling in from TV and cinema, uh, not so much books, because that was a constant argument between us, but we're sorting it out now. They're going to university, they'll have to read. Um, and I wanted to kind of reflect that. And so that kind of filtered through the same sort of lens as everything else that I do, which became a sort of slightly, slightly meta, incredibly meta uh, comedy about being 12. But it was a being of age film rather than a coming of age film. And it was 
really stupid thing to do because they funded it largely ourselves, some crowdfunding. Um, it was my first feature. I directed a few shorts, but I'd not tackled anything of that size. And no one should tackle anything that size when you've got like 25 grand for a film that should cost 250 grand. Yeah. And you're pulling in favors and you're working all day, every day. Um, you know, it, it, it brought me closer to my children because they were in it and they were at work with me. So that was nice. But it destroyed almost every other relationship in my life because it was just for 18 months I didn't do anything else didn't think about anything else they slept um so i'm glad when people watch it and enjoy it because they should get something out of it um it was a it was a nightmare chainsaw that ran through my life i'm proud of it it's, it's got its flaws like every low budget film but i'm very very proud of what we pulled off yeah i just wish that i, I wish i'd done it now instead of five years ago whenever it was uh, yeah it must be because the children are 18 now <laughs> It, it, it feels like it was almost your first dab at kind of autobiographical because it, like, it was about your daughters, <laughs> yeah. but it seems like it was kind of putting a toe in that water. I think I think there's definitely a sense of kind of pulling, of realizing that artistically what I have at my disposal is having had quite an outwardly unique life. And rather than trying to draw on sort of more esoteric things, why not draw on the thing that I know best, but also that is actually probably the most interesting things about what I want to talk about and the creative ideas that I have. And I, I think there should be something of you in all your work. I, I don't think it necessarily has to be as naked the autobiographical as some of my stuff is and certainly well, when we get on to red generations there's as much of me in that as is in bisection it's just yeah. cloaked more by the universe in which i was playing and yeah so i think yeah a dozen summers was yeah i'm glad it's there I'm, I'm glad it exists and it definitely was one of my favorite pieces of writing but then I just had to. Then I had to try and turn it into an actual movie with no money. Um, and it's a, and it's still a pretty good movie. It won some awards and stuff. It's only me that really stares at its flaws and gets slightly nauseous and has to find the Rennies. Um, a lot of people really loved it, and I'm really glad of that. And it was a big thing for my children's sense of if you want to do something, you do it, and then. It's hard work. If you're willing to work hard, you can achieve anything. Because those are two lessons that you kind of have to keep in children's minds in balance. It's all very well going, oh, darling, you're wonderful. You can do anything. But, Father, I have no skills. <laughs> Never mind that. You don't need skills. Whereas I think what my children saw was, yeah, you can make a movie. It will nearly kill you. But you can also write a book. It takes six months. You can... You can play music, but it will. But you have to sit and you have to learn and you have to read, you know. And they know that everything that I've done has been the product of, oftentimes too intense, but always of hard work. And I think if I pass one actual sensible lesson along to them, it's that yeah, you can do anything, but you got to put the effort in. And so that I'm, I'm I'm happy with that. If that's what they remember about me. As, as they're selling my books off. Uh, <laughs> uh, one, thing we, one thing we should just um, uh, touch upon with uh, Dozen Summers, you, you've got Colin Baker in on that, uh, that quite a coup of yeah. casting. 
I thought that was going to be my only little connection back to Doctor Who, is my, which is like my favorite thing in the whole world and my comfort food at all times. It has been since I was a kid. Um, I, it was my treat to myself, really. I, uh, he was top of the shortlist for narrating the film. Just because I love his voice and I love him as an actor and also because he's massively underrated as an actor in general and as the Doctor in specific. And I won't have a word said against him. I think he's marvellous. And I met him on a short film that someone else had hired him for. And I was just helping out that day. I wasn't acting or anything. And I just ended up hanging out together. And I did the very sensible thing of talking to him about everything except Doctor Who. We talked about the theatre, we talked about the performances we'd both given that we liked, we talked about, you know, the set, the part that he was working on then, because I knew that, like, as much as he loves Doctor Who and is a great ambassador for it, it's not it's only a part of his career. Yeah. So we, we talked about acting, we talked about books, we talked about things, and we got friendly. And so I asked if he would mind if I sent a script to his agent, and he read it, agreed to do it, and instructed his agent to make the deal work and that was it Colin came down to Leicester um, and and recorded in our studios there and was absolutely fabulous it's been a brilliant day and just watching him in the booth the, playing the part and the outtakes that we had it's just amazing um, now the day that he came in I literally I got a, I got a message from about a dozen people exes my girlfriend um, my production manager is going switch the ringer on your phone off because it is the Doctor Who theme tune and if it rings when he's there that will be the least professional thing that's ever happened to you and I was like fine yeah switch it off so, yeah. so you haven't until till then mentioned Doctor Who once then your ringtone goes off <laughs> go, in, go into the studio put it down and then I was like oh right I'm going to call the production manager because um, he needs to he needs keys to get in. So I put my phone back on to ring him. As Colin walks in the door, he rings. And it's the original Delia Derbyshire arrangement. And all Colin says as he walks past me into the booth was, could at least have been my theme. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And we were off. It you played the doctor in. <laughs> yeah, I played him in. But not with his own arrangement of the theme. So I, I, at least it didn't look like I planned it terribly well. So... <laughs> oh that's wonderful uh so yeah i, I, I love colin so getting on to regenerations uh this, this is a, a absolutely wonderful book uh yeah i mean you've touched upon it yourself already but i i was very acutely aware reading this how much of yourself does seep through and it's like i think there have been so many different uh by now kind of versions of the war doctor written each of which takes from one aspect of the version in the Day of the Dog. So George Manns takes upon one sort of side of it. You seem to have gone in through the idea of mental health. Seems very kind of prevalent to me right from the beginning. That whole idea that he is trying with madness, trying to be someone other than who he's always been and who he will again be in the future. Yeah, definitely. That was what... That's what interested me about The War Doctor. I've never... I think... I've read a lot of kind of. I really like George Mann's Engines of War. I think it's a yeah. great, great book. Um, but I found like some some fiction about the War Doctor. I think sometimes people are too intent on making him not the Doctor, and I I 
I think that that kind of ignores how complex that people are as personalities, that we do have phases in our life where we aren't the person that we want to be. We aren't the person that we hope to be. And we're trying, sometimes because we've had to do things that we need to do. And so, and, you know, I know a little bit about duality. So the war doctor spoke to me from that. And I had the opportunity with this sort of setup that I was gifted by Barnaby at Chinbeard that I could explore that through the war doctor. And I think like anyone who writes the doctor, you, you do your version. You, you, you find the elements that connect with you. Um, I think I probably, I think my war doctor probably has more in common with Stephen Moffat's war doctor than anything else. Cause I just think, I think, I like his writing, and it feels like as though some of our concerns about storytelling and fantasy and, and the way storytelling affects people and the reality of storytelling kind of, I think, line up a lot of the time. Um, but I'm also a huge Douglas Adams fan, and that, you know, that's a very similar kind of vein. Um, so, yeah, I, the duality of the War Doctor interests me because it's much more interesting to me that he is still the Doctor and having to not be that it is that the regeneration changed him into something else. Yeah. That, that, that I, I, I think that's, that's too easy. If he's, if he's lost the doctor, there's no comeuppance for him. There's no pain. There's no regret. If the doctor is still there, but he's had to be shunted to one side, then now you're talking, you're talking about a good man doing bad things rather than a good man becoming a bad man. A good man doing bad things is much more interesting to me. Uh, because there are very often times in our lives where we're called upon or end up doing things that are diametrically opposed to our own conscience and then have to reconcile that with the person and the image of ourselves that we like to present. And that's, you know, it's, I, I think the best Doctor Who stories, as fantastical as they can be and as fun as you want them to be, are, are rooted in something real, uh, that, that whichever writer is tackling it as kind of, rooted the fantasy into a real emotional thing that you can kind of get your uh, your head around so i mean i think that's true of even a lot of the best stories in the classic here you know, although i don't like saying it's one it's doctor who there's one this it's just doctor who um and it's been going since 1963 and jody is the doctor and whether you like it or not that's yep. my official take on the whole situation do you see this is what i've always said and i've had to kind of like it it uh, had the courage of my convictions recently, I think is the best way of putting it, because I was personally not the hugest fan of the finale of the last series with the kind of like timeless child stuff. Just my personal take. But I never once yeah. said Doctor Who's dead. I never once said Jodie isn't the Doctor. I never once said this isn't Doctor Who. No, it's yeah. Doctor Who. Just this particular bit of Doctor Who is not to my tastes. And I think that's... Absolutely. There's 56 years of it. You can't like all of it. You know, it's it's... But it's all part. It's all part of the the same story, and you see what happens next to the story, and maybe you'll like the next bit. And exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's it. Exactly. I'm. I I, I'm, <laughs> I have limited patience, although much kindness and tolerance. Limited patience for people who go. I didn't like how that story went. Therefore, the story is wrong. No, you just didn't like the story. The story is just the story. It's. You don't. It's like that's like a kid being read a story. They're like. And then the Goldilocks ate the porridge. No, she didn't eat porridge. She had the Cheerios. <laughs> Fine, Goldilocks ate the Cheerios. No, 
it's that kind of reaction yep. that people have the entitlement it's like a five-year-old being around the store like i don't like how that happened make it different do the voices and it's like that's what twitter is twitter is overtired five-year-olds being read a story that they've heard before and therefore want to be the same but completely different <laughs> at all times and i feel for people because i know that all of those things online come out of people's desperate all of our desperate kind of search for attention and identity but sometimes as you get older you're just like why would you say that out loud whereas i spent the f first sort of 40 years of my life going with other people going to me why would you say that out loud <laughs> so it's uh, i'm getting my comeuppance um because I'm hyper-aware of propriety. Yeah, I just, uh, I think it's just, uh, I think I was very pleased, certainly, that, like, uh, when I, when there was something in Dog 2 again, which I didn't, I wasn't such a fan of, I'm glad I had the, uh, I, I wasn't tempted once to say, oh, R.I.P. Dog 2, if I read that one more time. Mm. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I, I digress a bit. Uh, no, no. The, the one thing which I did together, yeah this is therapy here apparently for me yeah, right. but uh, the one thing which I did notice which uh, it, it's kind of funny when you end up doing something like an interview like this when you prep and you look through someone's work back to back kind of closely you notice certain things one thing I did notice is that I feel like almost even though uh, bisexual was such a personal uh, look at so much about your life and obviously is your life story I felt when you were writing Regeneration in that first story, it was almost like uh, the way the Doctor thinks gave you permission to have a million words a minute in a way that even I don't think was true in bisection. It, do you think that's true, or is that just something I'm I, reading into it? I do. I, I, I think it's. I think that's probably true. I think. I think when you're writing the Doctor, I don't know, I'm sure this is probably true of those written in for any other type of fiction, whether it's the TV show or audio or whatever, the, the, the doctor gives you license to tap into the doctor-like parts of yourself. Mm. You're never going to, you can't be the doctor. You can't suddenly turn yourself into a space-faring genius uh, from, outer, uh, from outer space, but you can find the things that appeal to you in the doctor and bring them out in yourself. And I think I quite liked concocting a mystery for him to solve and then guiding the way that he solved it that that i uh, the mix the mixture of sort of joy and joy and sorrow in the doctor is kind of always spoken to me and and i kind of continually aspired to tip the balance in, in the favor of joy a little bit more and so it was yeah i i I, it, the doctor didn't have, didn't have to calm him down <laughs> overly and you know and, and obviously with all the great writers that we had on the anthology or writing the other stories and being able to work with them to tie it all together um, it was great because you know I was hearing the voice of every doctor as we went through and it was it was really it was a really nice way of kind of writing the war doctor and having his memories interrupting the story his altered memories interrupting the story the way they did because it kind of felt like it was giving a whole sort of sense of this person and who the doctor was and yeah it was it, i mean it, i mean i was gift i mean i came on to the project quite late on um 
in terms of the writers had been assigned and then a writer dropped out and originally I was only going to write um, the first Doctor story that I wrote which would, would have been quite similar to that and then in order to get the book done um, Tim Berdua, my publishers asked me if I would edit it so we kind of um, I got every, all the material that had already been developed and like helped writers shape it and then I wrote the War Doctor story around it um, because my, my, I wanted it to feel like a novel and not like an anthology. I wanted it to feel like a novel that had diversions to the past in it as opposed to just a collection of stories because I can find that they can be a bit, without a guiding hand, they can be too tonally diverse where it becomes um, distracting rather than yeah. curse. And, and I think that that was what I was trying to... Uh, avoid and i uh, you know also i wanted to <laughs> i wanted to write my doctor who novel around all these brilliant stories that uh, everyone else had written as well um so yeah i mean a lot of a lot of a lot of respect for like the writers who had me thrust upon them um and took any edits that i made in very good graces but also provided me with some wonderful material to work with as well so yeah they should all they, should, they all deserve a huge amount of credit for the the book it was a joy yeah i thought Northern summers was the only time i was going to get to touch the hem of uh, doctor who's garment but now i'm thinking oh regenerations will probably be my only chance to write for the doctor well well we'll see people seem to be liking it so you never know it might fall on the right desk somewhere along the way i mean there's there's something about editing as well which seems like uh, it's catching clouds it's it's uh, something about like you don't want to kind of stifle the creativity but you want to shape it into something kind of like yeah. uh, better at the same time like you know something more cohesive something which is just going to function better something which is going to tell what the writer's trying to tell better i i don't envy anyone doing that kind of editing side of it a lot of it is just, you know, you respect, having a respect for writers and, and, and putting yourself in their position. I, I think when I do edit, I try to, if I have to add a line or change a line, I, I take the time to learn the person's voice um, mm. so that it, it looks, so that it fits. And I've, I've never had a writer who treated with respect ever uh, objected to an edit or ever felt, and should never feel when I'm editing anything, that they can't turn around and go, no, don't change that, and this is why, and then I'll be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's fine as well, you know, it's because, you know, the, I have a lot of respect for writers, I know how difficult it is, I know how much imagination and perspiration it takes to, to write a piece of any length, so yeah, uh, like I said, uh, also, I really helped that I had really great writers, so that, that made my job a lot easier. Well, um, before we go, I do like to ask uh, my guests a, a, a bit of advice, like it's just a, a, a bit of a thing to help me and my uh, viewers and listeners get better as people and creatives, uh, hopefully, along the way as well. So uh, given our conversation today, I think what I'd like to ask you about is how do you measure or how do you balance being creative with uh, keeping your own health which seems in this day and age for a lot of us with mental health issues and this kind of crisis a very important thing how do you balance those two things I've learned to be kinder to myself in that there were times when I would doubt tools from pure exhaustion in the past but I would also spend any of that rest time berating myself for not continuing to do something where I, it being a weakness of some kind that I wasn't able to do a 27-hour day um, 
damn those hypothetical three hours refusing to exist yeah now now i now i rest i stop i stop a lot more readily i i i if i get to the end of a, a piece of work and i'm like i've done good work today but i know that if i do another half an hour i'll probably undo half of the work that i've done and i'll make a mess of it and i'll walk away not feeling as positive and sometimes it takes a very deliberate decision because it's not in my nature if I'm writing, my nature says I will get up first thing in the morning and I will write to first thing in the morning and I will stay at my desk all day and I'll probably mostly consume coffee. And back in the day, I used to chain smoke, now I chain vape, um, which is much better for me. Um, it's hard to get the chain lit, but, um, <laughs> boom, boom. I am a dad, after all. You know, I, I'm allowed crap dad jokes. I'm all in favor of crap dad jokes. Like my children are always like, oh, dad jokes. I'm like, I used to tell these way before you were around. These were just people jokes. These were just shit people jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Your kids are just the excuse now. Why I get that. Yeah. <laughs> You're why I get away with it. Yeah. I'm funny. I get paid money to write funny. You horrible children. And yeah, no, I think it's just enforcing enforcing breaks and actually letting yourself off the hook and sometimes just reminding yourself of how much it actually takes out of I say this to my daughter a lot and a lot of things I find that as my daughters are going off to uni and are kind of hitting real sort of adult level stresses I find that I try to take note of the things that I say to them when I'm trying to keep them they're cool um, one of my daughters absolutely loves singing she, she's not the one that's continuing in the art she's going into nursing which is amazing mm. um but she loves performance and loves singing, but she she has such horrible anxiety that it, it is such a struggle for her to get up and do it. And I said to her the other day, she was like, she was really beating herself up for the fact that she found it difficult to get on stage in front of a, a room full of people and sing. And I was just explaining to her, it's like, do you know how much it takes to get up uh, uh, in a room full of people and sing to people? most people can't do it at all they have their anxiety stops them so if you're able to be creative and you're able to be creative for half an hour in a day and that takes it out of you well done you know that half an hour you created so you brought something into the world and i try to give myself that same advice that if i manage to do some work i'm proud of in a day I mean, obviously, sometimes deadlines and, you know, things I have to deliver to get paid slightly shift the schedule. But I do let myself off the hook more now than I ever I did. And and I've found a way to be proud of what I'm doing without feeling like I'm crossing some kind of weird line into arrogance or the mania or mania, which sometimes would, you know, you'll shift into feeling like if I just write one more word that will change everything. And Kanye, um, <laughs> I feel for him so much. I really do. I, yeah. I think it was. I was really pleased to see that people were came back out in the second go round and were saying, "Let's try to be sensitive to the fact that he obviously is going through a very hard time." Because I do not know what I would be like if I had the buffer of money and fame to keep people from stopping me from doing things. Because I can, I can imagine yeah. all sorts of the things that he's done 
off my meds making perfect sense and i i, I do feel you know it's like why do you feel bad for multi-millionaire Kanye West? I feel bad because I don't think I don't think at the moment he's getting the help that he needs, and he's having to suffer a very public breakdown. And while I don't agree with his politics, and I don't agree with uh, a lot of things that he said, I feel an enormous amount of empathy because I've felt I've been on the inside of that, and I know what it feels like. So I am pleased to see that the conversation started to shift away from. Oh, look at Wacky Kanye to, you know what, maybe we need to be a bit kinder. I'm in favor of being yeah. a bit kinder to everyone, regardless of how we feel about them. It never does us any harm to be kinder, even if it's to yeah. an idiot. It's, it's, that's the, uh, the <laughs> my life advice. always be kind to an idiot. <laughs> that's why where kindness, uh, is really kindness as opposed to just something which is easy for us. Kindness isn't always easy. And I think that's a mistake no. people make. Kindness is really difficult when it's someone who's politically you disagree with or, or uh, you might disagree with them emotionally for a reason. But still seeing them as a human being and being kind to them, it, that's when it's real kindness. There's a massive difference between empathy and sympathy and also a massive difference between empathy and approval. I think people... Um, I, when I, I did, taught a course recently on empathy in cinema... And because I felt it was something I wanted to talk about in the middle of this pandemic, and I did it from from home. Um, and one of the points I kept coming up against that I kind of developed as I was researching it was that I disagree with almost everything Donald Trump has ever said or done in his entire life. I think he's a dangerous man in the position that he's in. I dislike him intensely. I still have empathy for him. Because he was a child who received no affection. He's never had to live in the real world. He's lost all those connections. I still feel empathy for what he, what made him what he is now. But that doesn't mean that I approve of him. It doesn't mean that I don't think that measures should be taken to prevent him from doing further damage. But I don't... I don't hate him. Yeah. Because... I hate what he does. I don't hate him because that all that will do. He'd never know. Me hating Donald Trump as person to person, you will never know about it. The only person it will hurt is me. Now, I, I, I want him out. I think he is a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I feel empathy because I, I can see the path of what happened to a human child to get to that point. And you have to be able to understand that because if we don't understand that, how can we stop it from happening again? And that's where kindness comes into play. You know, once upon a time, you know, Hitler was an impoverished painting war hero um, and had he could have been put on another path had interventions been taken. You know, the hatred is something that gets inculcated into people and and grows when it's not challenged and kindness you know you don't have to be soft you don't have to be walked over or or put up with things to be kind you just have to try to understand that the moment in which anyone is doing anything is not singular that it's always connected to something else it's always connected you know in yourself that when you're when we're talking here and i'm sort of answering your questions there's that communication going on. But in my head, there's a thousand and one other things happening, all of which stretch back right to my childhood. And the same for you. Yeah. And I think 
our, our awareness of the complexity of human beings would would help us as a society massively because we we've become very in the western world you know let's not pretend this is the only culture that exists on the planet but in the western world we've become so reactive we see a thing we react to it someone wrote a thing online we don't like it so we write straight back there's no reflection there's no you know oh that person said that thing in a way that i don't like therefore they must think this and it's all become very very binary and on, on every level not just sort of the gender binaries that we talk about everything everything is binary right and left male and female and um, whereas the reality of history teaches us that there's been a non-binary world from the word go if there are not there's not even one universe there's seven billion of universes everybody's perception of the world around them is so completely different that we've got no right to swan about the place going this is how it should be but we can say be kind because it's the one the one and only thing that's moved throughout human history to have good effects is kindness everything else is up for grabs but kindness is always always healthy a wonderful night to go out on but uh, before we do just very quickly get bisection and I'm just going to want to make sure I'm getting this right. Is it regeneration or regenerations? Regenerations. Regenerations. Yeah. Please yeah, buy them right now. You can get that from the Chinbeard book web, uh, Books website as an ebook now. Prints sold out. Bisection you can get everywhere and everywhere. Uh, but please, yes, get, get both of them, all of them. Regenerations is for a very great charity um, helping research around ME. Um, and Bisections yeah. is for another great charity, which is keeping me fed and watered. Yes. And the one thing we do say on this, this podcast, like I'm about to do a, uh, I mentioned it at the top, Squeefest, this 24-hour uh, podcast thing. I ask people, like, please do support artists. Please do support the NHS. Please do support all these wonderful things if you can afford to. If you can't, we also, we love you and please enjoy all this kind of free Absolutely. stuff we put your way yeah. to. Uh, but if you can, those are the people you want to support. Smoke them if you got them. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, from me, Dr. Squee, and from my guest tonight. And no. Thank you very much for watching. I've been Dr. Squee, and that was my show.